Well, brethren, lots of things are happening, and God certainly is intervening in human affairs. Passover is exactly four weeks from tomorrow night. And quite often, prophetic events speed up around Passover time. This often happens really more than usual at this time. But most of you have heard about the 6.6 earthquake hitting Okinawa just off the island of Japan uh, the other day. And that was a big earthquake and uh, did quite a bit of damage. And now today, early this morning, as most of you know, there was an 8.8 earthquake, a massive earthquake, which hit Chile. It hit about 200 miles south of Santiago, I think it was, the capital. But buildings were rattled, and we don't know of any serious damage, but it was about 800 times, about 800 times more powerful than the quake that hit Haiti. And yet it's not doing near as much damage because the Haitian earthquake was hitting a populated area and those people did not have the safety precautions taken that they have in Chile because they've had many more earthquakes much more often in Chile and they're much more prepared for earthquakes. But we're still hearing continuous, as you'll come home tonight on the radio, you'll hear of damage. The, I was given a report on this, which is out of date, but it talks about some of the things that are happening here. And it says 78 people. Well, on the radio just a while ago, I heard over 120. So they have over 120 known deaths already. And uh, they had this lady on from Hawaii uh, by phone on their interview for the radio station. And she was saying the sirens are wailing just out here on the beach. And she had to come in from the beach because they're warning people to get off the beach. The earthquake is expected to uh, uh, spawn huge tsunamis, some of which may hit Hawaii or even as far away as Tonga, possibly even the Philippines. So all that part of the Pacific Ocean is in possible danger. Now, they don't know that, but they already have seen some big waves starting, so they honestly do not know how much it's going to hit. We do not know how many people, of course, are going to be dead in Chile and nearby areas. So we do need to pray for our people. We should pray for the other Church of God brethren. There are many other Church of God brethren in that part of the world. And we need to pray for them and ask God to bless and protect His people and guide it for good. And we trust that He will do that. So we need to be aware of that. But as these tsunamis come out, possibly even hitting the Hawaiian Islands and other parts of the world... We need to realize this. They've had some really awful quakes in, in Japan, in Indonesia, and right around what they call the Ring of Fire uh, coming toward this way. And now this one in South America, if you follow the pattern, it kind of goes like this around the south and then right back down the western coast of South America, right down into California, the Ring of Fire. They call it because so many extinct or partially extinct volcanoes and other situations are there, which often result in earthquakes. So anyway, we need to pray that God will help us, but I hope God will help these things, and He, which He will, if we pray about it and do our part and get the message out in a right way to wake people up. Our God is real and our God is alive. And a whole bunch of things Jesus said are beginning to happen. If you read Luke 21, he talks about great earthquakes there, and they certainly are beginning to happen, as one of the commentators mentioned, more frequently and obviously more powerfully than usual. In addition, there is a big dispute between the British government 
and the Argentinian government over the Falkland Islands. Remember, under Margaret Thatcher, the British retook the Falkland Islands. The Argentines had come in and run them out. The British came back and took it back in 1980 or 82. And now the Argentinians are upset again because they discovered oil just off the Falkland Islands. So we could pray that God will guide that for good. Of course, we don't want people to be hurt. But it is something to watch because if the Argentinians retake the Falkland Islands, which may well happen, they've already got this whole uh, South American, Pan-American organization uh, behind them. They made a unanimous resolution uh, backing Argentina in this dispute. So if they're able to pressure Britain out, what will that mean? That will mean, as you've heard me been saying ever since we started, God is taking away our sea gates. He is taking away especially the British sea gates. They control most of the sea gates. They've already lost the Suez. They've lost the Bab el-Mandeb, the southern entrance of the Red Sea. They've already lost the Strait of Hormuz, which 70, through which 70% of the Middle East oil passes, a terribly important sea gate. They've already lost the Strait of Malacca. They've already lost the Simonson's base controlling the, the direction around, the, the way around uh, uh, South Africa. And one by one, the gates are, 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 are being lost. And so they only have two major ones left. I may not be remembering all of them. I don't have all this written down. But all but two of the major sea gates that they controlled are already gone. And if the Falkland Islands are taken away, which they probably will be eventually, maybe not this time, then there will be one. And the Spanish on the north, and I think it's the... Uh, uh, Moroccans on the south, they're agitating. Either one of them may retake Gibraltar. They both claim Gibraltar. And then the British will have none. Zero. Zero. One by one, God is taking away these things. This, brethren, and you brethren around the world who will hear this, please understand. And you young people, it's not that there's a, might be a God off somewhere and we're not sure. There is a God. And there is a real living Jesus Christ at his right hand, who is the word who inspired this book. And these things are happening. There are specific things happening to major nations, major events that no other church on earth even begins to understand except us in the churches of God who have descended, so to speak, from Mr. Armstrong. He gave us that understanding of the identity of Israel and the meaning of these prophecies. So we can be very grateful for that. And we can understand what's ahead. And we should be very grateful and excited as we see these things happening. Also, there's a major uh, catastrophe brewing. We don't know, but possibly in the European Union because uh, Greece is now bankrupt. They're having to be bailed out by Germany and France very reluctantly. They hate to part with more of their money. Uh, they warned Greece to get things in shape and they wouldn't. And so they're going down. And then it looks like Spain may be next, and if Spain collapses, then Britain itself may be next. So one way or the other, as I've told you, the British will get out. I'm just giving that as a prophecy. Some of you younger people are not baptized yet. Some of you others are visitors. Let's write it down. Hold me to it. The British will not stay in the coming beast power. It will not be Ephraim in the beast power. Ephraim is Britain, or they're the descendants and were Manasseh. We will not be, and they will get out. They'll either get out because of this situation or some other situation. They will not be part of it. 
and, and the United States and Britain will continue to lose our sea gates and we will continue to go down. There'll be little ups and downs. The dollar will continue to go down. It won't go straight down. It's gone up again recently. It kind of goes like this, you know, and then, but gradually down. And that is the direction. That's a symbol of our power. And God says He will break the pride of our power. And so He's doing this. And these massive events are taking place. Now, if this causes the whole EU to come apart, which some commentators, I'm not talking about our church people, I'm talking about the uh, worldly news commentators, say could happen if this thing spreads, then they may have to have a complete restructuring of a new organization along the same line, but somewhat different than the common market and the EU. And that would then prepare the way and maybe toward the final form of the ten nations that we talk about in prophecy. This might be the beginning of that type of thing, if you follow me. It's very exciting. These things are getting toward the end of this age. So that is very important to watch. Our God is alive. Our His Word is powerful. Powerful. And we need to listen, brethren. We really do. Turn with me, if you would, back to John, the Gospel of John in your New Testament. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm going to get a little of this tea here, clear my throat. <clears throat> John, chapter 1, verse 1. This goes back even before Genesis 1, 1, when you understand it. In the beginning the, was the Word... As you know, the Greek word here translated, W-O-R-D, is L-O-G-O-S, logos. It means word, it means speech, it means revelatory principle in the beginning, or it can be translated spokesman. In the beginning was the spokesman, the one who spoke for God. And the spokesman was with God, and the spokesman, or the word, was God. He was in the very beginning, before anything else existed. All things were made through Him. Brethren, when you think about Jesus Christ, we don't often put it this way, but as I was thinking and praying about it this morning, when you see the wind come gently through the trees, that is, you don't see the wind, but you see the trees gently swaying, whose wind is that? That's Christ's wind. When you breathe in the air that you breathe, that's Christ's air. You are breathing His air. He created it. When you eat food, you're eating Christ's food. When you look at the beautiful mountains and the beautiful valleys and the massive oceans, that's Christ's creation. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. God made all things through one who could be described very loosely, of course, far more than that, but His executive vice president. They would decide on things. God's the big master governor of the universe. And Christ is the one who often carried out the activities, at least in the earth. There may be things going on in other parts of the universe that God is doing directly. But he's had Christ watch over this part of the universe and over humanity in a special way. As you know, God the Father has never revealed himself directly to men. They did see God in one sense, though. The Bible shows that very clearly. Read Exodus chapter 24. They came up there in this uh, uh, banquet, this special celebration of the covenant, and they, they saw God, and he ate with them. But that God was Christ, the God of Israel, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the rock of Israel, that God was Christ. 
But many other scriptures tell us that God the Father has never been seen by men at any time. God the Father, He's always dealt with humanity, always through the personality who emptied Himself later and became Christ. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness of the doctrine did not comprehend it, it didn't understand. Here was a human being, a young Jew like they were, and they thought, well, he's just like us. And they would kind of kid with him, and I'm sure they did some horseplay as young men. I think they did. I think Christ was normal and very friendly and probably bumped shoulders and watch out there, John, and, you know, horsed around a little bit. He was a warm, loving person, masculine. He wasn't some sissy. But then all of a sudden, this guy they took for granted, they thought ghastly, here he's all, all zonked out here asleep in the storm. Wake up! Don't you realize we're perishing, they said. They thought, here's just, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, he gets up. And he looks at the wind, he says, peace, be still. And the wind just starts stopping right then. And their heart starts pounding and sweat came out on their brow. <laughs> the back of their hair stands up. It shows that. They were astonished. They said, we don't know who this guy is. We think we know him one day and the next day he's doing all these things. They did not know who he was. They could not understand it. He was God in the flesh. Verse 10, he was in the world. He came into this world as a human being. Emmanuel, God with us, and the world was made through him. He made the world. And the world did not know him. They did not really understand it at all. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. They killed him instead, of course. But as many as received him, to those Jews who were converted, and later others, Gentiles, were gradually called, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The word name in Greek means everything about a person. His job, his, his, his strength, his personality, his power, his character. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And the word became flesh. Christ became flesh by being born of a human virgin nor of the will of the flesh, or I'm sorry, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John came to realize gradually that this was God, and he was one of the first to recognize it. When you read the Gospels carefully, he was very sensitive to who Christ was more than the others. He had a greater spiritual perception. Yet Peter was the leader. He had greater administrative ability but when Christ took two people with him, or three people with him, as he usually took, who were they? Peter, James, and John. So he took Peter, and then he took uh, Peter's brother, no, he took James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And then the original James died, you know, and got uh, executed. In Acts 12, I think it was, Herod chopped his head off. And then the other James appears, James the Lord's brother, who becomes the other leading personality. So Christ was God. And with God from the beginning, we have to picture a great being out in space with a blinding light coming out from him. We don't know his face. Powerful and magnificent. And that being finally came into the flesh to die for you and to die for me because we need it. We need it and we need to understand that. It says over here in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. What? John the Baptist was born six months before Christ. But John the Baptist was given spiritual understanding and he realized this was the one who'd been with God from eternity. He was before me. He had been with God from eternity. Going now, brethren, to Philippians chapter 2. If you would turn there, Philippians chapter 2. We'll read beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have your mind on others. As Mr. Stroud was bringing out, we've got to lay down our lives for one another. We've got to be the bond slaves, the bond servants of one another. We really should try to do that more than we do. And I know I have tried to do that some, and yet I'll forget and do other things. But you see, I'm the human leader of the church of God, not because I'm any better than anyone else, which I'm probably not. But I've been around a long time and had all these experiences with Mr. Armstrong and how he built the work and helped him build the work. And so as I look around at the other ministers, I see that Dr. Winnale has more capacity in history and certain other technical things than I do. And I see that Mr. Ames has a better uh, universal type accent and deep round radio voice. He grew up in New England and was already on the radio in college and has other capacities in understanding certain prophetic and chronological and technical things than I do. He'd studied engineering and math, and his mind goes to that more than my mind does. And we have others that are outstanding in different ways than me all through the work. And they have more capacity than I do in certain ways. But I am able to give the direction. Without vision, the people perish. I can have that vision more easily because I've been around longer. But I need to think, how can I serve these other men? A lot of them are younger, bigger, smarter, maybe more dedicated than I am. And only God knows that. But how can I be their servant in the right way and yet lead them and lead the church as a servant? And each of you has got to think, how can I serve these other people? And brethren, sometimes we end up competing with each other too much. One of the leading evangelists said years ago, it was not one of the Armstrongs, but another very dedicated man at the time. He said, Rod, he said, no matter how high a job we have in the work, and he had a very high job in the work at that time, we can be important and we can be one of the vice presidents and over this and that and something else and an evangelist. He said, that is absolutely nothing compared to what we're going to have when we enter God's kingdom. And we all you all need to think of that. We all need to think of that. Because each one of us may have a much, much bigger job, so much bigger than what we're doing now that there's no comparison when we're in the very kingdom, the family of God, and maybe ruling over cities, maybe later entire, you know, planets out in space. I'll tell you of the increase of his kingdom, there is no end, as God says in the Bible. We can't imagine the glory we will have if we're willing to say, God, I'm willing to quit all the arguments. I'm willing to quit all the self-justification. I'm willing to surrender to you, my God, my Father, my Creator, and give my life to you and really mean it and accept Jesus Christ in payment for your sins and really mean it and repent and not want to do those sins anymore and beg God for help. 
And then he will give you things beyond what you can even imagine. He simply wants people who are really surrendered to his way of life to honestly love him in a right way and to love one another in a right way so they can be happy forever. But if they're going to keep fighting and competing and in sexual things lusting after each other and in business lusting after more money and competing and beating each other out, And that attitude of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed motivating them, you see, rather than having love in all these relationships, not lust or vanity or competition, he wants that kind of person to be in his family forever, to be part of the family of God. That's why we're here. So this personality, who is the Word, the Logos, was the one that he and the Father agreed would be the instrument to come in to this flesh and reconcile us so that we could have that opportunity. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Well, of course not. He was God, but made himself of no reputation. But as the Greek scholars tell us, the Greek expression here is kenosis. He emptied himself, it said, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. It's, it's an emptying. He gave up the glory. He gave up the power. He gave up quite a number of the attributes of the Godhead. He still was that personality who had been God, but he did not have the same power he had before. He certainly didn't have his face shining like the sun as he did before. His voice didn't boom across the earth like the sound of of thunder like before. All those things, you see. He was a human being for a while, yet the Spirit of God in him. He emptied himself, taking the form of a what? The thing Mr. Stroud was speaking about, the word servant in the Greek is nearly always from the Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. It means bond slave. They had bond slaves who were servants of others back at that time. And so we're to, take, we're to have that attitude in our relationship to God. We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ and coming in the likeness of men. And being in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was willing to go through that kind of humiliation and prolonged suffering Some men hung on the cross two or three days or more before they died, just in agony, and their stomach swelling up because of the food putrefying and pressing against their stomach lining and everything else. No doubt their breath slowing up, their eyes panting, and their stomach swelling, and all their body hurting and aching as they were hanging there. It was awful. They said you could hear men scream for miles sometimes. They'd have a whole row of them along along a street sometimes, crucified, some on each side. You've read about that if you read the Bible commentaries. It was not fun. It was not a nice thing at all. Christ went through a horrible death. So he was obedient to even to that death. Why? Because he loved us. Because he and the Father decided we want other personalities in our family. We want beings who are like we are. Just like Adam looked around for a mate and he named the cows and the horses and the chickens and the goats and some beautiful birds. But, you know, he didn't really enjoy talking to the cows and horses and dogs. He could pet the dogs. But then God said there was no one like him. And so God created a woman out of his rib, literally, and brought her to him. 
And it didn't take Adam very many seconds to figure out, wow, <laughs> this is a beautiful creature, but I can talk to her. She thinks like I do. We belong together. We're able to communicate. We're able to share our plans, our hopes, our dreams, and everything, not just physical love, but everything, in a way he could not remotely do with anyone else. He was terribly lonesome, I'm sure, before that time. And then he was not lonesome anymore. So anyway, God wants us to share with him eternity, and God and Christ have that kind of love, and they want others. They have outflowing concern, other personalities to share eternity with. So he was willing to die the death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, the office, the power, the glory, the responsibility, which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a powerful thing. Christ was willing to empty himself to make it possible for you and me to come into the very family of God and be full sons of God just like he was. Now, God caused this whole Passover thing of his son giving his life to be pre-enacted that is, acted out ahead of time on two different occasions. One of those occasions was just a human type, just a one person, back in Genesis chapter 22. And interestingly, God is called the Father, God the Father, and Abraham is called what? The Father. He's the only one in the Bible called that, the only human being in that sense they've been given that kind of a title. The Father of the Faithful, because Abraham was a type of God. And in this very situation, he acted in place of God the Father as a type. Chapter 22 of Genesis, it came to pass after these things, God tested Abraham. An awful test, a massive test, terrible test in a sense, and yet wonderful at the same time. And said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, his only legitimate son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. It shows how Abraham left early the next morning. He didn't argue. He didn't say anything we have any record of. He just said, yes, sir. And he did what God said. God really appreciates that attitude. However, brethren, as I've told many of the brethren, hundreds in the past, when I would cover this passage, I should say it to you and to you brethren out there this time, if any of you gets a message in the night, go kill your son... If I got a message in the night, go kill David, or in the past, go kill Mike or Jim, as I said back then when they were little boys, would I immediately do that? No. No. You say, oh, you have a bad attitude. No. God has never spoken to me that way before. I do not know God personally in the way that Abraham did. I would have to say, Father, if that is you, I want you to show some massive miracle or something. So I would know that this is God speaking. You see what I mean? Abraham did know God. He had had that same voice, that same spirit personality talk to him on quite a number of occasions. He did just hear a voice in the night. So understand that. There is quite a difference. This was God speaking. This was the one who had spoken with Abraham years ago and said, you know, go into the promised land and begin to lead him and perform miracles. He knew and he knew he knew this was the governor of the universe speaking to him. And so he did what God said right away. And when they got there to the mountain, chapter 22, verse 9, Abraham built an altar, placed the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, 
This shows something about Isaac, too. He was already a young man. He must have been at least 15 or 20 years old. Jewish tradition says he was 20. We don't know that, but that's their traditional age of maturity among the Jews. They go to war at age 20. Norma, a normal 20-year-old today, would wrestle with his father and say, You don't stab me, boy. I'm going to hit you in the face. You leave me alone. Isaac was so dedicated, he knew his father was a direct servant in an unusual way of the great Creator. I mean that. You you know that when you analyze this chapter carefully. He knew what was happening here. Maybe God had even put it in his mind to partly understand. He said, turn around, son. I'm going to tie you up. That was remarkable. Isaac had a very obedient attitude, too, and he is used as a type of Christ who was willing to give himself. Laid him on the altar. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife. But the angel, and here this was Christ... It says angel means messenger, and you read the whole account, you can see this was Christ speaking for the ultimate Lord, Christ speaking for the Father. Christ called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the ladder, do anything, for now I, not the Father, not Christ, I, this was Christ speaking, I know that you fear God. You have that awe of God. Dr. Winnell gave a fine sermon last Sabbath on the awe of God, the, the fear of God, I mean. And that is that tremendous sense of awe, tremendous awe and worship and reverence that we have for God. I know you fear God. And that's an important thing. That's the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham looked and God had provided this ram and so then the messenger of God, verse 15, called out a second time, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Here's one of those places where we were to be given the gate, and it's in the plural form, by the way, in chapter 24, verse 60. In Genesis 24, verse 60, it says gates. So gate or gates. The only important gates between nations for warfare that would be regarded as gates in the past or even commerce are not the ty- uh, ty- what is it? Tiber Pass, anyway, some, uh, like that way, way up in the high mountains or something like it used to be. Kyber Pass, I think it was, wasn't it? That's the special pass I'm trying to think of. But the sea gates, they've only had air gates. They don't even use that term very much. But sea gates have been a tremendously powerful thing in warfare and in trade. The British Empire was able to become great by controlling those checkpoints around the world that became the great sea gates, even in modern times. So he said, I will give you the gates of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that refers to Christ, but also dually, of course, even to us. That is, the British and descended American peoples, because we have been the ones who sent the 600 ships of grain to India when they were starving. We're the main ones helping out Haiti right now. We've always been the ones to help the other nations of the earth. God just gave us that nature through our father, Joseph. And God said that, too, and that's part of this, because you have obeyed my voice. God gave that awesome blessing because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son. 
And how was he going to sacrifice him? Hang him? No. He was going to do to him precisely like the Levite priests did to the lambs. He would gently lift his head, slit his throat, the blood would gush out, so he'd just have a sense of peace. He would feel a little slit maybe, like a pinching of a pimple, and as the blood gushed out, all his thought would go away. He would not suffer. The blood was to be poured out of the Passover lamb. He was the ultimate Passover lamb. And Isaac was a type of the Passover lamb right here. So God deeply honored Abraham by helping him and guiding him to be able to do this. Turn now forward to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And let's understand more. God spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning, the first month of the year. We call it Abib or Nisan. Speak to all Israel. On the tenth day of this month, they were to take up a lamb, perfectly unblemished male. It was to be a male lamb, type of Christ. And your lamb will be at blemish. Verse 6, you'll keep it till the 14th day. And at the beginning of the 14th day, they were to slit its throat. It was to be God's Passover because Christ was trying to show ancient Israel and picture for us ahead of time. And I don't have time to cover every scripture, of course, here today. But you look through the whole book of Hebrews and it says several times, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Christ shed his blood. The life is in the blood. Leviticus 17:11. The life is in the blood. So Christ gave his life by shedding his blood, and so the Passover lamb had his throat slit. A perfect lamb. They kept it up till the beginning of the fourteenth day to kill it at dusk, at twilight. And they shall take, verse 7, some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and lentils of the houses where they were to eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh in that night, the flesh of the Passover lamb. You see, we're to eat the flesh of Christ. He said, unless you eat my flesh and and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And when you read that whole passage carefully, including verse 57 there in John 6, you realize he's not talking about us becoming cannibals, but we have to really drink in of Christ spiritually, and spiritually speaking, eat of Christ. We eat of Christ. We literally have him live his life in us, you see, by drinking in and feeding on the word by praying to God fervently on our knees and asking for His Holy Spirit to come into us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to lead us, to give us the strength. Just like food gives us strength, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual strength and so on. We eat of Christ. And so Christ is our Passover in more ways than one. And so they would eat the flesh. And He said, verse 10, Let none of you let it remain until the morning. And what remains until the morning you shall burn with fire. Now, some of the arguers over the Passover trying to say it's the next night. No, it's not. It's this night. And they did not go right out then. They waited and went out the next night because they had to wait. And, and they were not to go out that night. And God commands them not to go out that night. But then the next morning, they would have been in their house. And would, they were to uh, burn it with fire, any, any food that was left over. But they were to put on this garment of getting ready to go at least, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, verse 11. Not the Jews' Passover. It is Yahweh's Passover. 
God's Passover, the Eternal's Passover. So God did that, and He says here in verse 13, Now the blood shall be assigned to you upon your houses where you eat are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He struck all the firstborn of Egypt. They were under the death penalty, you see, just like all of us were before we accepted Christ as our Savior. But once you accept Christ, you are, spiritually speaking, under the blood. They're under the blood, then God will forgive you your sins, and you will be protected from the death penalty, just like those Israelites. And so the word Passover, why, do you, why that word? Because of this. When I see the blood, when Christ sees that we have surrendered to God, and really, truly, meaning it, accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, who pays for our sins, but lives His life in us, then He passes over us. He protects us. He forgives us. We are not under the death penalty anymore. So we need to understand how important this occasion is and what it pictures. So brethren, real Christianity is not a matter of arguing over, well, we keep Saturday instead of Sunday. As you've heard me say, I remember meeting many of the old tough guys uh, through the South and the Midwest on the old baptizing tours back in 1951 and 1952 and 1953, all three summers I went out. And some of them were maybe even chewing turbacky as they talked. <laughs> One old man wouldn't quit smoking. because I sent Herbert a whole bunch of money. You've got to baptize me. I said, I'm sorry, sir, and we, we can't baptize you unless you at least indicate you want to quit this and you're going to try to let Christ live in you. You don't know how much I've given us. I'm sorry. He sent Mr. Armstrong a really strong telegram. Your smart lake young man would not baptize me. And I explained it to Mr. Armstrong. And he said, I understand. He said, that's fine, Rod. You've got to only baptize those people who are repenting. You can't just baptize people. So we can't buy our way into God's kingdom. And we can't say, I'm good because I'm keeping Saturday instead of Sunday. Brethren, we in this church, and I've said this before many times, right here, and you brethren around the world with us, we are the church of the forgiven, the church of the forgiven. We have to be forgiven of our sins. And you and I should constantly be aware that we are sinners by nature. Every one of us is sinners. And any of you who think you're not a sinner... Come up and counsel with me later, and I will I will talk to you about your soul. <laughs> you might be an angel unaware, but unless you are, then you are a sinner. And we've got to be forgiven, every one of us. I've had to be forgiven again and again. I make mistakes every day. Sometimes I get un, you know, a little upset and say something unkind to my wife or kick the cat and slam the door, you know. <laughs> we don't have a cat, by the way. I'm just saying that. But anyway... We are human, and every now we have to realize that. But God has to forgive us every day, and every day we should repent, and we have to consciously realize that we are the church of the forgiven. Turn now to Isaiah 52. This is a wonderful thing. God picks up on this theme throughout the whole Old Testament. I can't give you all the places, but let's hit some high spots here. Isaiah chapter 52, and beginning in verse 13. Better get my watch off here so I know where we are. I would like to preach till 5 o'clock. Some of you might not like that. A lot of you say, well, we don't care. Mr. Armstrong used to preach till 5 o'clock. You think he was a great man? And he didn't start at 
true. He, the service started at one thirty, you know, and he was still preached till five o'clock. <laughs> but we were we were not the Reader's Digest generation. We were used to having longer longer meetings and a longer attention span back there. Anyway, back Isaiah fifty two verse thirteen, God says this: Behold, my servant shall deal prudently; he shall be exalted and extolled very high, as many as as were astonished at you. So his visage. You see, his face, his countenance was so marred more than any man. Here was a being he was prophesying about, a man who was, as we understand, being beaten to a pulp, for he didn't even look human. As I've said, the only thing I've ever seen, I'm sure you've seen things worse. I don't watch all the movies and TVs at all. I watch practically no TV except our program and the newscasts. But I did see the movie... Ben Hur years ago, and you may remember Marsal is the one competing in this chariot race, and he was trying to get uh, Judah Ben Hur killed. And God says, "He that digs a pit will fall into it." Well, that's what happened to him. The tables were turned right around, and he was the one that got knocked off his chariot and dragged. And it showed him later his face. Of course, Hollywood did a good. The makeup guys did a good job. It made him look awful, like his face was all half torn off. His body was covered with blood and so on. That gives you a little bit of an idea, though, how Christ actually looked after the beating. These crazy pictures you see in the Vatican Museum, which I've seen and seen and and, uh, in uh, the uh, National Gallery in London and all these other, the Louvre in Paris, they they show this real skinny, weak-looking guy with uh, Norwegian or Dutch features, not Jewish at all, and then he has a little trickle of blood here, or a little tiny bit of something like his eye got scored, you know, something up on his cheek, and that's about it. They don't have any idea how Christ looked. But anyway, he was terribly beaten and torn apart. His form was more than the sons, and his form was, you see, torn, marred more than any man. So shall he sprinkle many nations, as they sprinkled the blood, you know, sometimes in a covenant. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what they've been told uh, they shall see, what they've not been told, and what they have not heard they shall consider. The, of course, the book of Isaiah goes right on. Remember, men divided these books into chapters. The original old scrolls they had did not have chapters or verses at all. The modern editors, since the invention of the printing press, did all that. So it goes right on. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this man that went through that terrible suffering, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Why dry ground? Well, the whole society was cut off from God. He says, you you, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, they were God's people supposedly, but they were hypocrites and adulterers and, and they were not honest before God. He was in a very worldly age. He has no form nor comeliness. No, Christ was not some really nice, handsome-looking man. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was a normal-looking young Jew that blended right in with the other young Jews that he was with his disciples so much that they'd seen him coming and going in the temple, but they literally were willing to pay 30 pieces of silver to be sure that Judas pointed out the right one. They didn't want to crucify the wrong one. So they looked very normal. That no one could say he was the great big handsome one or something. He was not. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
So Christ went through a lot of suffering. Remember, after his first sermon in the synagogue, they grabbed him, probably cursed him, and jerked him up to the edge of this cliff, and they were going to throw him right down. I've seen that cliff. Some of you have. There's only one like that near Nazareth, and that's where they were about to throw him down. And somehow it says going through the midst of him, then he got away. It doesn't say how. God got them confused, and they were shoving and arguing and maybe blinded them, literally, and Christ got away. He didn't have to hit them in the face, but he got out of there. But they were going to kill him right away. Over and over they tried to kill Christ, not just once. So he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And certainly his own people did not esteem him. They cursed him. They spit in his face. They put a sack over his head and hit him and said, Prophesy who hit you if you're the Messiah. Ha, ha, ha. Smash. It hurt. He must have been covered with blood by the time they got through with him, his whole face, his upper body. Surely he has borne our griefs. Or the Hebrew word says sicknesses. He was lashed, scourged to pay for our physical suffering so that we could be healed. So he has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed through the stripes that he went through. Remember, he was scourged, first of all, with a big cat of nine tails that the Jewish lictor, the Hebrew, I mean the Roman lictor, that we get our word licking from that, I understand. They use that term, L-I-C-T-O-R, lictor, one who specialized in wielding this whip. And they whipped him with that to tear the hide off. Then they took him out to crucify him. That's why Christ fell down. He was not a weakling. He was weak from shock, from loss of blood, and a whole bunch of things. By his stripes, we are, and then... First Peter picks that up in First Peter 2, and there he changes the wording a little bit under God's inspiration. He says, by his stripes we were, because by then Christ had done it. By then, by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sins had to be paid for. They had to be paid for, and unless you really repent, and many people come on into the church and they don't really repent and they're no more converted than, you know, Mickey Mouse or, or Donald Duck. I'm not talking about any one of you necessarily. I don't mean I'm just saying this happens. So you need to examine yourself. I could start naming a whole bunch of people that were baptized back in Ambassador College that we thought were converted and they were not converted at all. So you have to think about it. I remember there's one, one young girl named Mary Ellen, and Mr. Armstrong baptized her when she was only 16, which he probably shouldn't have done. He realized later, he said that looking back, we normally wait until they're at least 18 or 19 is the minimum. But he baptized her at age 16, and then she was all emotional, very smart, very smart, quick-minded young woman. She knew the right answers because her folks were in the church. They could give you the right answers. But the question is, do you really surrender to God? Then a couple of years later, Dr. Hay baptized her. And then she realized later by a bunch of other things that she uh, had done, you know, wasn't really converted. And she started dating this soldier and started smoking and cussing. And then she went to Germany when she married this man. And she was sent as a, into the non-commissioned officers, kind of a bleak 
a place up near the North Sea where it was cold and wet and rainy and the, the wind off the North Sea. And she told me about it. It was just awful. She had to hang her clothing out uh, to, to, to dry. didn't have an automatic washer dryer back then. And, and she got cold. And finally, she separated from him and came back. And then she wanted to be baptized again. Well, I made her wait and talked to her three or four times, long talks, and finally I baptized her again. So I'm involved in this tale. <laughs> and then she fell away again. <laughs> then she went up to San Francisco or Portland. I think it was San Francisco. And then she came to the minister up there, whom I knew real well. And after a year or two or three, she he called and he said, Well, she's up here, and she's so repentant, and she's gone through so much, she wants to be baptized again. I said, Look, I can't... She, she, she's already been dunked in the water three times. And uh, and he pleaded with me. And I said, well, you take another six months. And I told him a whole bunch of stuff to kind of a, an obstacle course to put her through. And after six months or whatever it was, she'd done everything right. And so then uh, he finally baptized her again the fourth time. And then she fell away again. <laughs> and I don't know what happened to her. She may be dead. I'm not trying to pick on her. I liked her. She never was mad at me or mean. She just was real quick-minded and smart, a real good pianist. But she didn't have conversion. Well, many others were there, sometimes deacons or deaconesses that were arrogant. And we had super deacons who would pick on people and put them down back in worldwide. And some of them were never converted. And some of you knew some of them, but you're not. <laughs> they, they were very carnal. We had evangelists, you know, who were not converted at all. And Mr. Armstrong said about one leading one, he says, he's never been converted. And I'm sure that's true. But at any rate, you have to understand that. Don't be afraid to examine yourself. God tells us, remember in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether Christ is in you. Before the Passover is a good time to do that. Have you really repented? Do you really want to be forgiven? I can't forgive you. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. You know, Mr. Ames can't forgive you. He can't give you the Holy Spirit. None of us can do that. You have to understand that. You can have the right answers, but you can't fool God. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. Understand that, brethren. Understand that you brethren around the world and you young people, we want you to be converted, but please don't play games with God. It's awful. You could go for years thinking you're converted and you're not really converted at all. You've never really totally repented, abhorred yourself, buried yourself under the water. Baptism is a type of burial. Read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. We're to be buried with Him in baptism that we might come up to walk in newness of life, and we ought to have a different life. I don't mean that we're perfect, but a whole different orientation once we have been really converted. So we have to understand that. Anyway, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. He was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb. He was the Passover lamb to the slaughter as a sheep. Before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And so he was to make his grave, verse 9, with the wicked and yet with the rich. So he was baptized. I mean, he was put in a grave of a carnal man, but still a rich man's grave, that special cave apparently. Yet it pleased the eternal to bruise him. He's put him to grief when you make a soul an offering for sin. Get this, verse 10. This being was to be this man an offering for sin. That's Christ. 
This was written 700 years before Christ, describing how the coming Messiah had to be beaten and his face torn and marred more than any man, and how he was a normal-looking man, and how he had to be suffering all through this situation. God inspired Isaiah to write these details 700 years ahead of time. His soul an offering for sin. You shall see his seed. He shall not prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge that my righteous servant shall justify many. So he was to justify many. He is the one who makes our reconciliation with God. For he shall bear their iniquities, so he, he bore, paid for our sins. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and spoil with the strong. He is to have everything eventually. Christ was to inherit the whole universe because he poured out his soul to death. The Son of God gave his life and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, he was crucified. He had a, a criminal on each side. They treated him just like a criminal. And he bore the sin of many. He was the ultimate sin bearer, the ultimate Passover lamb described here 700 years ahead of time and made intercession for transgressors. And what does the Bible say? When he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't really know. He understood that. They were blinded. And now he's still our intercessor. When you read uh, Romans chapter 8, the latter part, you'll see how Christ is our... He makes intercession for us even today. So he was our intercessor then or their intercessor. He's our intercessor now as our merciful and faithful high priest at God's right hand. He continues to make intercession. So these prophecies are, are just wonderful, many of them pointing to the Christ. Now turn back to 1 Peter 1, if you would, in your New Testament. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and notice beginning here in verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, as Mr. Stroud said, the word grace, it often means, it really means gift and mercy and all those things. So it means forgiveness, free, unmerited forgiveness in one sense of our sins, but it can also mean God's love, God's kindness, and mercy and love. And so let God's character be poured out upon you, His grace, His mercy. It's talking about all those things. Rest your hope fully upon the grace, God's very nature, that is to be poured out on you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, He's going to give you a glorified spirit body. He's going to be merciful to you. He's going to bless you in every way. As obedient children, not disobedient, the Protestants somehow get this all mixed up. They're afraid to obey. They just seem to want There's something resent, resentment in their minds about that. God has allowed that, of course. He said the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The normal mind of the carnal mind, man does not want to think that there is a great God that can tell him what to do, and he has to do it. You say, well, I love God, and but I'm not going to just have some God telling me what to do. No one's going to interfere with my sex life and no one's going to interfere with my finances and say, you've got to give me a tenth. 
you own me and you own my land and everything. We resent having that kind of God who owns us, you see. So anyway, uh, we've got to be obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're to honor God because he bought and paid for us. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, you see how you live, how you do, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. In other words, in godly awe and humility before God. Knowing, get this, verse 18, that you were redeemed. How are we redeemed from our past sins? With not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. I think that's a good way of putting it. It was not just sinful, it was aimless. I remember back in Joplin High School, well, most of us, you just were kids. We wanted to have fun. That was our whole goal in life, and we had no purpose. We were aimless. And uh, we would wander around and drive up to, to uh, you know, Lucky's Drive-In and see if some pretty girls were there, and we'd try to flirt with them and, and then drive on and then go do something else and just wander around looking for fun. And and uh, then my boyfriends, as I said, my gang often, and I did this too some, but they did more. I could begin to realize I think God was already working with me. And they would play pinball machines. They were not stupid. Dr. Ashby Grantham became a leading doctor up at Bellevue Hospital in New York. And Jimmy Porter became the president of the, uh, the uh, CPA Association for the whole state of Missouri. And a whole bunch of very smart guys. But in high school, they just wanted to have fun. And the little ball, the pinball machine, you know, you push the thing and the ball comes out, ding, 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 ding. I thought, here are these young men my age, and I wanted to read something worthwhile or wanted to go exercise or accomplish something, and they were just watching this little machine ding, 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 and smoking at the same time. And I knew I shouldn't smoke because I'd been taught that, and I was running the mile, and you can't become a good mile runner and a smoker at the same time. And so I watched them play pinball machines and inhaled some of their smoke, I'm sure, because uh, they were my friends, but I began to realize it was aimless. They had an aimless conduct. They didn't know why they were here. They didn't know why they were going, where they were going. And so they, we, God has redeemed us from our aimless conduct be received by tradition from our fathers. But with the precious blood, see, Christ is the Passover lamb. We're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb. A lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God planned this all along, but was manifest in these last times for you. Last times, that was 2,000 years ago. Some people criticize me because I'm saying we're in the last times and we just have a few years to go. Well, we may have, you know... 8 to 18 years to go before the tribulation or something like that. I, I, I hope it's 5 to 7, but we don't know that. As these things speed up, we think, uh-oh, maybe the chronology we've, we've had is, is, is correct, and then we always have been too soon, so it may be more time. But it's sure not going to be very many years as God looks at times. God counts times in the thousands of years, so it's very, very quick as the way God counts time. These last times... Now, brethren, let's notice uh, 
Well, I think I'll skip this next one here and then go on to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 27. Let's go to Matthew 27. I don't want to run out of time here. They have a trap door up here. You, uh, if, if I go too long, they may pull the plug on. <laughs> Matthew 27. And here it's talking about Christ's sacrifice. And beginning in verse 22, Pilate, near the end of Christ's trial, his appearance in a sense before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate said to the Jews, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Of course, the, the, the religious leaders hated him. They were the main ones that disliked him because he was their competition. They wanted to get rid of him. And they all said, let him be crucified. But the governor, he was a smart Italian. He'd been around the track a while. He, he sensed what was going on. He knew it was all, they, he knew that for envy, it says in one account, that he was delivered to them. He saw that. But he also was a politician and didn't want to get in trouble. He didn't want to have to bring in an extra Roman army to put down a rebellion. So he kind of went along with them. But he, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! But when the pilot saw he could not prevail, but rather a tumult was arising, he took water, washed his hands. So he literally had someone bring out a pan. Well, that was though that got him off the hook. Well, of course, it didn't really in God's sight, but he tried to, he let them know, I'm having nothing to do with this, but I'll let you do it. I'll let you do it. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And brethren, I love the Jewish people, and I have nothing against them at all. And most of you who know me, in fact, my boys kind of persecute me, said, you think the Jews are smart and they know everything? I said, no, but they are the most intelligent single ethnic group on earth today. You look at the list of the top scientists, the top doctors, the top this, the top that, and an absolutely awesome number of Jewish people are there. I tell some of the few Jews that God has called and come with us, he's starting, so they don't get the big hand. I said, God, God starts at the bottom and works up, you know, so he, he doesn't call the Einsteins and the Bernsteins first. But they do have tremendous capacity, and they're wonderful people. Many of my Jewish friends have shown great, wonderful things to me through the years. And I mean that. But they did have this passion against Christ. They were led into that by their, their uh, priests who were jealous of Christ. And they said, His blood be on us and on our children. And when you think about all the suffering of the last 2,000 years, I think this does have something to do with that. It's, it's really awful. But anyway, then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, get this, verse 26, he had scourged Jesus. That was that official whipping from the Roman lictor, the official scourging just before the crucifixion. At the Passover service, why do we take the bread and then the wine? Why is the bread first? Because Christ was scourged first. His body was broken first. Then he was crucified and his blood was shed and he died. The bread comes first. He is scourged and then taken out. And then he delivered Jesus to be crucified. And then he was on the cross in verse uh, 35. Then they crucified him divided his garments, casting lots. And in verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. A supernatural darkness suddenly descended right in the middle of the day when it should have been the brightest. And Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He must have felt an emptiness at that time 
because God was not giving him any special help all before. In his heart he knew it, yet there he was, the human flesh cried out. It was symbolic. He knew he was to do that, but he must have felt it to a degree at that time. He was cut off from God in a certain way at that point because of what? Because of you guys out there and me too. That's why he took on us our sins. He became the sin bearer and our sins cut us off from God. He was temporarily cut off from God, did not have any special help during that period of time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was suffering, his whole body was writhing with pain, and so on. And so they thought he was calling for Elijah and tried to get uh, something to drink so he could talk. And Jesus, verse 50, uh, well, I'm sorry, in verse 49, they said, Let him alone, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And right then, brethren, I must not forget, the original manuscripts in the Greek, hundreds of them, have this here, which is left out of the Vatican and the uh, Sinaitic text, but in most of the other texts have this in and should be in. It says right here, And another took a spear, pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. That should be right here, right after, see if Elijah will come and save him when, he, when they did that. A young, I used to say, Italian soldier, like the Italian guy killed him. I love Italian food, and I've had a lot of Italian friends. How can we know it was an Italian? It wasn't a Jew, probably. It could have been, but the, the Romans had conscript armies. It might have been a, a, an Englishman. It might have been a, a, a Germanic person. We don't know who it was. It was someone in that conscript army, and God makes it blank so we don't blame anyone. I think that's where he does say who it was. One young soldier, unknown soldier, had a emotion sweep over him, a feeling from God, I think, in this case, because it cut short Christ's sufferings, if you follow me. He was in agony, and he cried out, and he said, oh, shut up, and rammed this spear in his side. And then Jesus yelled at that point, you see, and when he cried again with a loud voice, Cried again. Would you cry out if a spear was rammed in your side? He was the sissy, but it really hurt. <laughs> I've never had a spear rammed in my side. He yelled again and yielded up his spirit. His breath went out. And God in the flesh died to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins. And behold, the veil of the temple, this great big heavy thing like a great big... Uh, Persian rug. It was very hard to break. Could not be pulled apart by men. Very hard to split. It was ripped in two right then from the top to the bottom, supernaturally, which separated the outer court from the Holy of Holies, showing that now man could approach God directly. That was awesome. And that happened. And then the earth quaked. A local earthquake shook the earth right then. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints in that area at least were, were uh, uh, who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the grave after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So I take it the, res the, the earthquake shook the graves loose, but then he didn't actually resurrect them or bring them up until after Christ's resurrection. So he was first even then. That's 
remarkable. All those remarkable things happen. This unusual darkness, no doubt rain and lightning and thunder and terrible things were happening and suddenly the veil of the temple is torn in two and a local earthquake shakes them. And this Roman soldier said, this must be the Son of God. He didn't understand it, but he said something like that. They tell us in the scripture here. So Christ died on our behalf. Then let's go on uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. This turn out of 1 Corinthians 11, brethren, and uh, beginning in verse 23. Here is Paul's account of the Passover service. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul writes under inspiration, For I received Christ, or Paul was taught directly by Christ, you see, in visions and dreams, and maybe even in person. He appeared to him in visions over in Arabia from the Lord. It may have been, frankly, in Petra, too. We don't know that, but that may well be the place. That which I delivered to you. Here's what I told you, and Paul is telling us this, too, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When did Christ keep the Passover? On the night in which he was betrayed. And what were the Jews doing that night? Nothing. Nothing. They didn't keep their Passover till the next night when you read the Scriptures. They had the wrong Passover. Don't let people get you mixed up about that. They had already been deceived into keeping the Passover one night late. But on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread which was a symbol of his broken body. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. His body was broken. So he broke this bread and said, Take, eat. As we eat that broken bread, we're not eating Christ's body directly like the Catholic Church teaches, but it's a symbol. It's a memorial of that. And we must have deep feeling for that. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, some of the early Protestants got upset and left the Catholic Church because of this doctrine of transubstantiation. As you know, the Catholic Church teaches that when they break the bread, it literally becomes the body of Christ. And yet some of the priests thought, uh-oh, and these great big Italian cathedrals are all over, Roman Catholic cathedrals all over, they're, they're big stones all over the floor, and sometimes some bread would get lost or drop down in the cracks, and the 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 the, uh, uh, the mice would eat it, or the rats would eat it. Are the rats eating the very body of, of God? Of course not. Of course not. It's not the literal body, but it's a, sim- a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance. It's a memorial service. A memorial is to be held once a year on the anniversary of the occasion it commemorates. Now, back in the Methodist church where I used to go as a boy, I think we had the Lord's Supper. Some of you were Methodists. You may remember. It seemed like it was every quarter. I think it was four times a year. Isn't that right? Some of, yeah, thank you. Then some churches have it once a month, and some churches have it. The Catholic church has mass every day, or some people take it several times a day. Well, God doesn't say take it one quarterly. It's a memorial service. It was not just any memorial service. It is called the Passover. And when God describes the Passover, which we just read about back in Exodus 12 and all the other places, He shows you to do it once a year. They did it once a year on the time God said to do it. Man has always got to change it around, whatever God tells them to do. 
as Mr. Armstrong used to say, if God had commanded all of us to keep Christmas, very few people would keep it. Now, you may not agree with that, but I do. I see human nature. If he commanded people to keep Christmas, they would not keep it. If he commanded them to keep Easter, they would not do that either. But God has allowed Satan to deceive them into doing things, whatever God says they don't want to do, and whatever God says don't do that, they do want to do. It's interesting. Human nature and Satan the devil working. In the same manner, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. That a, They often had a covenant ratified by blood, you see, and this cup represented the, the, the blood of Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Christ shed blood that was poured out on the, on the stake. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, a memorial. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're showing what is going to happen. And you're proclaiming his death, reminding people of the meaning of that. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, it doesn't say you're unworthy, I'm unworthy, you're unworthy, we ought to be sincere, but you don't have to be perfect to take the Passover, but you better be sure you really mean it and feel that you really did repent and really have been converted. But if you take it in kind of a flippant, sarcastic manner, you see, or whatever, that's wrong. You'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord if you do that. But let a man examine himself. Doesn't say the preacher has to examine you. You have to examine yourself. And so let each of him eat what that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He doesn't understand. Here he's emphasizing the body part. Because he goes on to say, for this reason, because you don't really have faith in the broken body of Jesus Christ to pay for your physical sins, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Many of them, even in the Corinthian church. You say, well, boy, we have people die. Oh, that wouldn't happen back in the time of the apostles. Well, it sure did. It sure did. Paul wrote about it. Many of you have died prematurely. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Now, I want to say right now, too, a lot of people who died did not die for this reason. I know that by their fruits. Some people die because it's just, <coughs> excuse me, Norse, they're real old. If I die in the next few weeks or years, it uh, doesn't mean that God has struck me down from heaven I've already been given about 10 years older than King David ever lived already. I remember one smart lake said when Mr. Armstrong died at age 93 and a half, he said, God struck Mr. Armstrong down. He built this big expensive building and did all that. God finally struck him down. Boy, he did finally. After 93 and a half years of living a wonderful life, he died peacefully in his own bed at home. <laughs> That's a pretty good way to go. So God did not strike him down. People do die for various reasons. Sometimes it's just God's mercy that they, he knows they'd have unusual trials that he doesn't want them to go through or for other reasons. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, God allows things to happen to us to humble us sometimes. We are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So God does rebuke and chasten every son he loves, and we do want to learn from that. So this is how the Passover was to be kept. Turn back to 
First John, I'm going to go over a little bit here, and I'll ask Mr. McNair not to pull the chain there, <laughs> not to unloose the trap door. Now, back in First John, at the end of your New Testament, First John chapter 5, and beginning in verse 11. First John 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us, <clears throat> eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son, you see, if we have Christ's blood applied to us, and if we have Christ living in us, and certainly this includes both those thoughts, we have to have the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we have, brethren, if we're really converted, eternal life. You who are converted have eternal life. You're not immortal, but you have the presence of eternal life in you because Christ is living in you through the Holy Spirit. And if you go, die, the Spirit goes back to God, but you have the presence of eternal life. And earnest, that strength that you've held, is a type, an earnest to show He will come through with a promised payment of total eternal life, giving you a spirit body in the resurrection from the dead. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And back again to my favorite scripture, Galatians 2.20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. The old self has to die. You have to repent, really repent. Not just be sorry, but so sorry that you're really willing to surrender to God and turn around and go the other way. And you mean it to the depths of your being. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, the old self, the human being, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. See, if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live with the faith of, not just faith in, but the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ gave himself for me. Christ gave himself for you because we needed it. We are the church of the forgiven. Every one of us has had to be forgiven for our sins, and God has to keep forgiving us. So let us all examine ourselves as we approach the Passover four weeks from tomorrow night and try to draw close to God, pray to God to help us to see ourselves as He sees us, to clean us up, to grant us deeper repentance. Maybe we have repented, but to grant us deeper repentance, more profound repentance, and to help us more fully give our lives to Christ so that we may walk with Christ and walk with God forever.